Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clennon. And you're listening to Focus Interviews by Spectacles. Today we're joined by Brent Giannata, who worked as a CIA counterterrorism analyst from 2010 to 2015 and is now a freelance writer in California. He's bringing his years of experience and knowledge to discuss what kind of tools we have in our toolbox to fight the growth of authoritarianism and promote the spread of freedom and democracy. We're discussing how to navigate tricky alliances with less than democratic partners, how we could improve our approach to international development, what we can learn from post-war Germany and Japan, and drawing on Brent's particular expertise regarding counterterrorism, what today's mass shooters have in common with ISIL militants, and what to do about it. So stay tuned for all that and more from today's Focus interview with Brent Giannata from Spectacles. So, Brent, uh, do you prefer Brent, Mr. Giannata, what? Oh my God, just Brent is fine. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no one okay. has ever called me Mr., so it'd be weird to start now. <laughs> so, Brent, thanks for talking with us. Um, I hope you've been enjoying Spectacles. It's exciting to sit down with you. So, one thing that you've been interested in recently, it seems, is the structure of the global economy and the extent to which autocratic or authoritarian regimes are included in global trade with the world's democracies. Obviously, that's very topical because the democratic West is doing quite a lot to sanction Russia. But in Europe, there's a concern that taking this too far could worsen an energy crunch they're feeling now. And at the same time, the developing world has found itself in a precarious position because wheat imports from Russia are crucial for feeding their citizens. So they're also facing a crunch. Unless one thinks that globalization is a sort of frivolous process without real economic benefits to the participants, it seems that democratic governments are going to continue facing this trade-off between domestic economic well-being and offering robust responses to authoritarian aggression and criminality. So in your view, how do you think we should think about this dilemma? And is there a way around this? Wow, what a great question. So first of all, I want to thank you guys for having me. It is, I have been enjoying spectacles. It's really incredible what you guys have built in not that thank much you. time. It's great commentary. It's good analysis. It's clean and crisp and very inviting. So I'm like really happy and honored to be here. That's really, your question. Well, we really appreciate that. Yeah, no, of course, of course. I'm excited to see what you guys do in the future. But uh, your question is gigantic, and I do have a lot of thoughts on it. <laughs> so uh, it's my belief that what we're seeing vis-a-vis -vis Russia and Ukraine is a lot of our fault, our meaning the United States and Western allies, because of mm. bad choices we've made over the last few decades concerning exactly the topic you brought up. Like how, to what extent should we be including autocrats in the benefits of globalization and yeah. trade and the global economy. And so I think that the attack in Ukraine is forcing a really important reassessment of that degree. And so I'm going full board. I think we need to, as a united front of wealthy Western liberal democratic states need mm -hmm. to really ratchet up pressure, not only on Russia, but on the top 10, 20, 30, autocratic sort of misadventurous uh, states mm. in the international community and start to draw dividing lines and putting more pressure, more carrots and sticks on the worst actors. 
And I think the reason it's clear is because we are going to gamble with these revanchist, violent attacks backed by yeah. nuclear threats, not only from Russia, which, I mean, the smartest people I can think of think this is going to grind on for potentially years, but then right. the much yeah. even more difficult quagmire of China. I mean, they are also a nuclear power. They have more people than anyone else in the world. They have far more economic ties across nation states than Russia does. Um, mm -hmm. And with the United States, that's a gigantic problem. We've got millions of Chinese students and businessmen and women here. We rely on that country for so much of our consumer goods right. and uh, natural resources. I mean, if we think Russia's a tough thing to figure out, China's going to be at least 10 times more, more difficult. So we really, really, as a country, we need to start reassessing how we're going to attack this problem. And I think a possible vector for us to go toward is to not hash this out through the United Nations, simply because it contains far too many autocratic nation state representatives mm -hmm. there, and right. not through NATO, because it is fundamentally a security alliance. We need a liberal democratic alliance where that we're democratizing or rather bringing forcing more liberal rights and civic civil rights on citizens living in the developing world and under autocratic states we need to do what we can to bring them into the liberal world and there's a lot of ways to do that given we have the internet now so we can reach these people we can reach civil society organizations in autocratic states like we've never had before. I mean, hmm. the United States, we designed the internet. It now wires the world. And most of the big tech platforms, they lie under US jurisdiction. So laws that we pass in our Congress can affect the entire world. I mean, if we, if our Congress had gone harder at Facebook, for example, two, three years ago, we could have really alleviated a lot of the destruction during the genocide in Myanmar. There's still mm. violence going on there. I mean, these are beach balls and there are a lot of obviously issues concerning our domestic politics here, which unfortunately I'm not an expert in. Um, but gosh, if, if reforms mm -hmm. to digital media could happen, that would be a gigantic step in the right direction. We could prevent a lot of, uh, the violence that we're seeing from Russia and, and probably, you know, China might be considering similar things and we could quickly and in, in kind of a short amount of time start making the world a much better and safer place yeah i think that's a that's a really important point and i want to come back to this question of putting pressure on or helping um pushing civil civil rights and civil liberties um and, and democracy um or promoting it uh, more effectively around the world a little bit later but for the moment, I just want to follow up a little bit on this point about China, maybe raise the stakes a bit. Um, I'm not sure if, if, if you read this article, but it was going around a bit. In the New York Times a couple of weeks ago reported that the Commerce Department, the U.S. Commerce Department, is investigating the importation of solar panels from China and foreign companies that use Chinese parts in solar panel manufacturing. And the action is taking place on behalf of, I think, one American firm, maybe a few American firms which alleged that China and these companies are dodging U.S. tariffs, which were actually, I think the tariffs were actually imposed under the Obama administration, but there were also tariffs imposed under Trump. Mm -hmm. Because of the investigation, I think a number of foreign companies have decided to stop selling solar panels to American firms, apparently because they fear that they could somehow be vulnerable to U.S. lawsuits. So the upshot, as far as I can tell, 
is a potentially pretty large delay or even collapse in solar panel installations in the U.S. in 2022, but potentially beyond that. And now at the same time, you've got these problems with energy in Europe, right, partially caused by the Germans who believe their dealings with Russia were commercial and neutral rather than matters of geopolitical leverage, which has obviously turned out to be wrong. And also mm-hmm. for our listeners, if they're interested, we, we put out a couple of good explainers on that from way back um, on that issue before Russia started indicating that it might invade Ukraine. Uh, those will be linked in the show notes, as as will the Times article. But what I'm getting at here is the extent to which it's possible to both cooperate on issues like climate change and compete at the same time, right? The Biden administration says that it's aiming to do that. But I do wonder how much cooperation can occur, right, if the U.S. is using tariffs and investigations that might be chilling relevant trade. And to your point about the need to maybe sort of draw a line in terms of economic exchange between these autocratic countries, I'm curious mm. about you know, what is the trade-off there in terms of the timeline on, on something that is so pressing like climate change? Yeah, it's a phenomenal question. And I think it's a false choice. So mm-hmm. China has enacted its own climate change advancements, not because of U.S. pressure, not because they're scared of what the, what the West is going to say to them, but because their own cities are just smog-choked, right? Right. Yes. I mean, I was, I was actually, I've been to Beijing actually. And I remember one, I was much younger and I looked out and I, and the first morning I was there in the hotel room, I was like, oh, it's really gray outside. And I think my mom was like, nope, that's, that's, that's not, that's not clouds. All the time. <laughs> that's something else. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I was in Beijing in 2003 and uh-huh. I was there for a week and a half and I don't remember ever seeing the sun. It, it was just yeah. like, we were in a cloud. We were in like a right. bad fog the entire time. Yeah. Right. So I think it's a false choice and I think it like giving concessions to Beijing because of fear of not being able to effectively negotiate with them vis-a-vis climate change is ceding far too much leverage to Beijing. Mm. I think they are going to march to the beat of their own drum no matter how much we placate them vis-a-vis mm. trade and uh, IP robbery and all the other things they're doing to violate norms and the global economy Mm. um we we would we can still achieve climate goals um well actually i don't know if that's totally true but even if we placate beijing it's not guaranteed we're going to meet climate goals Mm. so i think it's got to be on the west to make itself independent in this realm. Um, mm-hmm. and if we, if we enact the type of new, let's call it like, a like a new age competition or rather a Western campaign to lift, you know, billions of our fellow humans out of autocratic or semi-authoritarian governances, then, mm-hmm. I mean, we can, we need to be independent on this. We can't rely on we shouldn't be relying on dictators anymore, neither for security or for anything else. I mean, mm. mm-hmm. if we if we keep on doing that and placating Saudi Arabia, given their human rights violations, Egypt, I mean, the list goes on. We're not going to improve the global society in the long term. We're mm-hmm. going to protect short term interests, whether they be economic or what we can do on climate change in the next few years. But sadly, that's how domestic politics rolls, that there's a, right. a, much more of a there's much more of an emphasis on short-term gain, yes, but yeah, it's not certainly. strategic. To be strategic, we would have to form an alliance with other wealthy democracies and decide that this is going to happen. 
And those who don't get on board, they should feel the carrots and sticks of our pressure. And like uh, you guys mentioned, Ann Applebaum's great um, article last November in The Atlantic that uh, the autocrats are winning, mm -hmm. that they are collaborating with each other more than before because of the internet and because of a uh, mm -hmm. zeitgeist against the West that they can exploit for their own gain. I mean, so that means that we don't have to go after full countries. We can go after the fortunes of the leaders and their families and their cronies. I mean, that's where a lot of leverage now lies. And if we target that, I think we can make actually a lot, like a lot of quick progress on that front. Mm. I, I do have one follow-up there as well, because what you're saying makes me think of the recent election in the Philippines, right, where Ferdinand Marcos Jr. won uh, with a pretty significant majority, apparently based on a lot of nostalgia for his, his father's, his late father's dictatorial regime. And he seems to set to continue the Duterte administration's authoritarian policies. But mm. the Philippines is also in a competition with China would be viewed as sort of a, a crucial partner, I think. And so I wonder how do you sort of navigate that as well, where you have a country like the Philippines, if you're aiming at the larger, you sort of the big fish of China, right? And, 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 the prop, and the problem that they pose, how do you navigate a relationship with a country like the Philippines, where you have a semi-authoritarian government that you don't want to drive away? But also, I think you're, you know, you're rightly pointing out that, you know, the extent to which we can continue to tolerate those kinds of people in our alliance. I mean, like someone like Duterte, it seems, you know, is, is, is a real bad actor. Um, we don't mm -hmm. know what Fernand Marcos Jr. is going to be, is going to be like yet. But yeah. I'm curious how you balance that as well. That's a great question too. So I'm not a Philippine expert by any stretch. I'm, I'm, sure. if anything, I'm a Middle East, uh, type of guy. Of course. That's what I, I focus on for over a decade, I guess. Uh, I used to live in New York and I had, you know, a handful of friends who were born in the Philippines and to a person, they all very much approved of Duterte mm. and it felt the reason was because they didn't feel a level of security that they would need to sort of make their lives better to a mm. point where they would be happy and free and be able to do what they wanted. So, I mean, when you have that kind of security threat, then a, a strong autocratic you know, police right. state looks, can look very, very attractive. That's a good point. Now, yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely not saying that the five people I knew in New York are a cross section of, you know, Philippine <laughs> citizens. No, of course. Broadly. So, all right, let's say there's some, there's some debate on that. I think we're going after figuring out how to treat these semi-authoritarian, you know, quasi allies the United States has, there's two vectors we need to go after. So one is the leaderships. Um, and I'll mm -hmm. reference Ann Applebaum's article is that we have a huge, we have huge leverage by using things like the Magnitsky, um, Magnitsky mm -hmm. act sanctions, which are mm -hmm. targeted sanctions that go after the actual leaders and making sure that they can't just rob their own countries and skim off the top of every dollar that comes in through foreign direct investment or through, um, private contracts to drill oil or do civic projects. We, we can mm -hmm. tighten the noose around them and make sure they can't, you know, stash money around the world in uh, secret bank accounts. Like that will bring a pressure on these leaders that I don't think we could have done ever before in history. And number two, we need to win the media war, the messaging mm -hmm. war. So what these autocrats are doing, they're obviously exploiting the internet to as much as they can brainwash their own people into, right. you know, believing that there's a gigantic threat from somewhere and that I'm the only person 
that can protect right. you from it. Well, like we mentioned before, the United States wired the world of the internet. We have more leverage in this space, in the messaging space, than any other country has. And so organizations like Voice of America, I mean, that mm -hmm. needs, like the budget for that needs to just like triple, quadruple, whatever mm -hmm. it is. There needs to be strategic, um, strategic coherence around how we message to other countries and what we want from that messaging. We, we yeah. want less, less support for just sheer autocracy for the sake of, you know, keeping like fake security threats at bay and more support for the idea, like democratic ideals. Um, and I think those two punches together can probably do the most to nudge these countries closer to something of uh, democratic development. I mean, the last mm -hmm. few years, maybe like the best thing we can say about the experience of the Trump administration is that it lit a gigantic fire among really, really smart researchers and thinkers about like what really makes a good successful democracy tick and what are the, what are the, the fall, the, the drawbacks that make it collapse. So people like Yasha Monk, um, people like Darren Assemblu and uh, James mm -hmm. Robinson, I mean, from their research and they might be right, they might be wrong. It sounds pretty cogent to me is that the most important dividing line in a democracy that determines whether it succeeds or not is the balance of power between elites and non-elites right. and the government's ability to keep that kind of even. Mm -hmm. And so in these semi-authoritarian countries, the Philippines, for example, the elites are winning. They're always right. winning. Yeah. And in some uh, countries, the government is strong enough to keep, to keep the uh, populace down. In other countries, like in Latin America, the, the bureaucracies barely function. Right. And so there needs to, you know, these organizations need to be, need to be strengthened um, on behalf of the non-elites. And we understand mm -hmm. that now. It's really, really hard to do. But if we put heads together, I mean, there's got to be some modes of leverage there. And uh, I think it is well worth the attempt. Yeah, and I think that hits on a lot of important ideas, some of which I think are really core to some things that Harry and I have written about before, which is in particular a need for us to find some kind of proactive stance to assist the development of democracy rather than falling back into reactive situations all too often, which I think we find ourselves in right now regarding Russia, but uh, hopefully we can get some lessons out of this that we can apply proactively to, to new situations before they become real problems. And on that subject, and you've hit on a few ideas, but I'm sort of curious to explore it a little more. You're also interested in international development and what the U.S. can do right through to promote democracy through international development. So we've talked about sanctions and things like this, but um, ways that we could sort of fund programs, uh, positive efforts, right, in democracy development. It, and it strikes me that that's really important given how little we, we tend to spend on foreign aid and development aid, despite many people thinking we spend a lot. But mm. supporting democracy is supporting the development of democracy in other countries is obviously enormously difficult. After about 70 years of debate and mixed success, I think it's fair to say that policymakers in America still don't really seem to know what works, so to speak. 
I think frequently donor countries like the U.S. shy away from getting involved in local struggles over the distribution of resources or questions of citizenship and seem to prefer to treat problems that are sort of symptoms rather than causes of political or economic dysfunction. They also tend to nudge money towards civil society groups that are inoffensive, who pay the right lip service to democracy uh, and political participation without rocking the boat, shall we say, of the status quo. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's increased attention to democracy, good governance, and the importance of political economy in sort of development aid discourse. I wonder what kind of tools can be embraced to promote democracy in more effective ways. In a way, what tools are in our toolbox and what are realistic strategies that we can go about to promote democracy without falling into the traps of past errors? And on a similar note, just for the last thing, you wrote a blog post some time back about Afghanistan, in which you argued that we were uh, right to attempt nation building, but we simply failed in that mission. So on a similar note, how could we have gone about that effort better and maybe found some success? Yeah. Okay. So I'll take the first question first. So the first thing we should do vis-a-vis international development is make it, make it public. If you lined up, you know, if you talk to 10 people on the street and ask them to name one project enacted by the U S agency for national development, you get zero Mm. answers. No one knows. Right. Yeah. No one knows what we do, yeah. but we do do stuff. We do a lot of good stuff. We, mm-hmm. we support a lot of, um, civil society organizations and over a hundred countries, the U S mm-hmm. military does humanitarian work. I mean, after the tsunami and, in, in the Indian ocean, I mean, the Marines were on, you know, different coastlines, like moving goods and services and things like that. But there's no, there's no publicizing of that. Like the public doesn't know about yeah. it. Right. So the first thing is to publicize that stuff because I mean, we're so divided here in the United States politically and culturally, but I mean, all of us ostensibly believe that lifting people out of living under oppressive, um, oppressive regimes where they can't get bank loans to start companies or go to good schools. We all kind of want that. And uh, to me, there's a direct through line between those types of those types of policies and what we're seeing with Russia, Ukraine, and what we mm. will see with China in the coming years. All right. So yeah. we, we beef up these programs and we beef up their publicization and uh, democratic development. It should not be restricted to what we saw during the Iraq war, like the mid aughts, where we're just setting up democratic elections where there are all those photos of women in hijabs with the, with the ink on their finger. Right. Yeah. Right. So those. we, we now all feel that that was such like deeply superficial window dressing and right. just having holding elections doesn't make for a successful right. democracy. I mean, Russia, for Christ's sake, they hold elections. Right. Okay. So th- there's just so much more that goes into it. Yeah. When we talk about civil rights. People tend to think about freedom of speech, freedom of movement, not being arrested and then tortured in a prison because of one's political beliefs, but it also includes uh, things like being it, being, having access to, to funding, to, you know, to investment, to start a company or to, mm. you know, invest in a, a family business and to lift, lift one's family's material resources. Um, and that's one of the main things that all these semi authoritarian states are doing. They're holding down the non-elites for the advantage mm-hmm. of the elites. Mm-hmm. So 
organizing this and making it sort of like a unifying project for the United States, I think is one of the very few things that can pull the U.S. domestic population out of this partisan rancor. It gives us something, something different to focus on. I mean, you can unify people through a common yeah. enemy or through a common cause. We don't want to do mm. enemies anymore. We, we tried that with the Taliban. We tried that with Al-Qaeda. We tried right. that with the Soviet Union. And it, it's not good. It breeds, it breeds a lot of hostility and just sort of like out of control violence and rancor. But what, mm -hmm. what if we did common cause and we tried to not push American values on everybody, but just pushed for massively increased like liberty uh, for people who are pretty close to having it, but not quite there. I think it just right. it could do so much great for the, the, uh, wider world and for us here in, in the United States. Um, when, uh, so your second question is on Afghanistan. So right. I would reference, uh, an article by Fintan O'Toole in the New York review of books. I thought it was just genius. I mean, he, he went down uh, the ways, or the instances in when the United States had a choice to make whether to give extra funding to the nation building project or the fighting the Taliban project. And yeah. fighting the yeah. Taliban always won. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Rory Stewart's talked a lot about that as well. Yeah. I, I know. Yeah. Yeah. He did a great piece in foreign affairs a few months ago. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. Um, there was just the, the funding on the nation building front was not even close to where it needed to be. He said like in Bosnia, where it was much more successful, it was like six or seven times what was spent in Afghanistan, mm. which is insane to think about considering the trillions we dumped right. into there, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. Our US military is trained to neutralize opposition targets. They're not trained to win hearts and minds, which is really what is required when you're trying to enact the counterinsurgency. So you think right. of counterinsurgency, you think military, but that's not what they're trained to do successfully. So there was mm -hmm. no surprise at all that that completely failed. You approach a tribe and talk to their leaders. I mean, to have Oakley sunglasses over your eyes and have a gigantic <laughs> gun. I mean, that's, that is not going yeah. to, not going to lead to any kind of cooperation that you want that right. we needed to neutralize the Taliban to the extent that we could actually really make progress on nation building, mm -hmm. like building roads and schools and and uh, reaching out to rural areas to get their buy-in on this new democratic project. We just, we didn't have the resources and we decided not to. It was a, it was a voluntary choice not to because we diverted mm. so much blood and treasure to fighting the Taliban. Mm. So mm. gosh, I mean, if you read uh, Steven Wertheim, who I think is yeah. pretty brilliant. I mean, to me, he kind of pioneered the autopsy in why we failed so badly in these forever wars. And I think personally, we leaned far too much on kinetic military action right. because of, I mean, let's go back to World War II. If you asked 10 people on the street in the United States, like, tell us about World War II, what was the effect? They're like, well, the U.S. military won World War II and that, you know, that neutralized, uh, you know, these autocratic imperial powers from conquering the world and it made, you know, the free world right. possible. Right. Like, sure, but not really. What really made the free world possible and, and established the international order is what the United States did after the war was won by rebuilding Japan and Germany into right. like phenomenally yeah. pumping like liberal democratic bastions of, of wealth creation. And they're, yeah. they're the two stalwarts on their continents that are holding other op yeah. opposition at bay. And they, 
grease the skids for the international liberal order to, you know, create all these incentives for other, other countries to buy in. Um, right. But we, that, that wasn't the lesson that we took. We thought that our military did it. And that's why we went into Vietnam and just destroyed that part of the world to no effect. And then we did the right. exact same thing in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we wonder why no one likes us and we can't improve anything. Because we're <laughs> right. taking, taking the wrong lessons. We don't understand how this works. But now we do. I mean, all these brilliant people that you and I have mentioned and you two guys, uh, you know, having the mouthpiece that you do, we, we understand how this works way better than we ever did before. We need to lean into, into the lessons we now know uh, are actually more cogent than before. Might have been helpful if we'd had Marshall become president rather than Eisenhower. Yeah, um. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Where was that? Well, that's, that's a, that was a really great answer. I enjoyed listening to that a lot. Um, and I want to sort of continue on that thread. Critics of U.S. policy, right, tend to hold up the sort of our, our the, the counterexample, right, is of, of today is China and the, the Belt and Road Initiative of like how much we're getting wrong, right? They've had these huge investments around the world um, that are you know tightly linked to their geopolitical interests as well as being right development programs, and particularly right in the Indo-Pacific region, there's increasingly a consensus that the U.S. is not doing enough on economic policy to make itself an attractive partner, right? You've got the military political front, we're doing a fair amount. The AUK-US submarine deal. We've restored the visiting forces agreement with the Philippines. We've recently made a bunch of hay about China's security agreement with the Solomon Islands. And of course, we're continuing to increase our military budget with a consequential focus on Southeast Asia. But those are the things that the U.S. knows how to do well, right? To your point that you just made, right? Military superiority. That's our bread and butter. That's our autopilot. Um, but on the economic front, we're just flailing. Um, and in large part, I think you can point to domestic politics don't quite favor the kind of investment that we saw China put forward with Belt and Road. Um, even if I think you can actually make a case that BRI is underdelivered a little bit relative to what was promised. Um, it seems difficult to get political actors on board with major economic investments um, like that. I think you know you can look at maybe people in the GOP tend not to like big aid handouts and stuff like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which would have created an economic zone that the United States was a part of, for our listeners who maybe don't know. It's supremely unpopular with the public on both the left and the right, right, due to you know more protectionist sentiments and stuff. So I'm curious how we confront those political obstacles, domestic political obstacles, standing in the way of an economic policy that facilitates the deepening of our relationships with partners in the Indo-Pacific. Yeah, wow. So this is getting above my pay grade. I'm, I'm not an economist and I'm sure. not a trade expert nor, you know, inner uh, government relations on economic issues. This It's not my bailiwick, but that's never stopped me from commenting before. So <laughs> um, Me neither. <laughs> I think the United States and its allies must lean way, way harder into outreach into Southeast Asia um, and all of those great countries in that Indonesia, Bangladesh, right. you know, Cambodia, lean way harder into reaching out to them on an economic front, on the front of democratic development mm -hmm. and on media messaging. Um, I mean, I don't know anybody from Laos. I, I'd be curious if you guys do. Like, I do not. Yeah, there doesn't <laughs> seem to be any relationship between our countries, but Laos is so close to China. It's like it's firmly in its sphere of influence since there's right. a lot of there's a lot of potential down there. And I mean, unfortunately, I suppose the Biden administration probably felt compelled to um, strengthen the quad. Um, yeah. 
what uh, it was India and Australia and Japan. Mm -hmm. um, but at its core, it's again, it's a security alliance and right. that's well and good, yeah. but we're not moving things in the right direction. We're not really putting the pressure on Beijing until we start to heavily invest in democratic development, economic development, and media messaging in these countries that I think are primed to become even stronger allies of the U.S. because of what you mentioned. The Belt and Road Initiative has a lot of weaknesses to it. It's, it's under-delivered and it's really screwed over a handful of countries that just recently realized like how Beijing rolls right. and that they're not going to live up to their promises. Yeah. I mean, the promises that Beijing are making to the, to the greater sort of uh, Asian world are even less compelling than what the Soviet Union made to the non-free world. I mean, mm. communism in its sort of purest, most benevolent form promises to alleviate poverty, you know, with a, with a planned yeah. economy that gives everybody a job, gives them enough work to do, and then it provides, provides people with the means to purchase whatever they need. But Beijing doesn't do that. The BLI is basically uh, a formulation of a way that Beijing can stack trade and economic decks to their favor with, right. uh, with just yeah. like bells and whistles. I mean, I read last year that Beijing like tricked Sri Lanka into yeah. signing a 99 year like agreement to give Beijing control of one of their major ports. And it right. just like they pulled the rug out from under them. And that is how Beijing operates. They're, this is completely on brand for them. And so mm. more and more countries, especially around Beijing, their sphere of influence are going to start realizing this. And it's a perfect opportunity, timing opportunity for the United States to reach out to them and grab them as allies. And if we don't do it, we're, we're really shooting ourselves in the foot in so many ways. Yeah. And I, sorry for taking you a little outside your wheelhouse on some of those, but I, I think you've given us some great answers regardless. Here's a question that I think right inside uh, uh, your wheelhouse. I want to ask yeah. you about a piece that you wrote in the LA Times. It was on the relationship between the radicalization of QAnon devotees and the radicalization of non-Syrian or Iraqi nationals who ended up joining the Islamic State or ISIL. Your work in the CIA was very much focused on understanding how radicalization worked in the case of the Islamic State. But I thought your insights into how it works for folks right here at home were quite sharp. And with that noted, I wanted to turn I want to turn to the tragedy that occurred just last week in Buffalo, New York. And it appears that based on his manifesto, the man who committed the atrocity there was was steeped in a white supremacist ideology that bears a disturbing resemblance to the kind of stuff you see on Tucker Carlson's show on Fox News, for example. Can you tell us a little bit about radicalization into extremist and violent ideologies and how that occurs? And to what extent is the ideology, whether it's QAnon, radical Islamism, or great replacement theory, uh, to what extent is it the ideology that motivates these acts? And to what extent is it the sort of particular situation of the person who commits these actions? Yeah. Well, thanks for doing so much research on me and reading, reading my stuff. Uh, of course. happen as much as I'd like. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's a big question. There's multiple components. It's not simply the ideology. It has to include 
a psychological vulnerability in the right. individual. So as I was my work in the, in the government, I had this account or this sort of this beat, if you want to put it in journalistic terms, I had to figure right. out why like 40,000 people were leaving their homes to go join ISIS. And some people left like gorgeous cities like Paris and <laughs> to go to a dusty impoverished war zone in either Syria or Iraq and fight for a terrorist organization and potentially die. It just, it, it seems so counterintuitive to our Western brains that anybody would do that. And so I did as much psychological research as I could. I've never taken a psych class in my life. So I was kind of starting from scratch, but, and if you sort of scratch the surface of psych 101, a lot of these decisions start to make a lot more sense because mm. the human psyche, like we want, we, we are really attracted to stories and narratives. And it's kind of like a throwaway yeah. phrase that we all say, right. and it's probably born from the hundreds of thousands of generations that humans developed on the grasslands of Africa, where were in tribes of 150 people and the tribes that survived were the ones that could rally and unify quickly and furiously against their enemies just over the ridge. Certainly. Um, and so right. we, you, me, and everyone we know were the progeny of those successful tribes that unfortunately down in our brainstem, our lizard brains, we've got this, this like strong attraction to dividing the world between, you know, good and evil and grabbing onto stories that make us the protagonist, make us mm. the moral actor, right? So mm -hmm. thank God we've, over the years, we've developed prefrontal cortexes, which <laughs> really do like logic and reasoning. And we can, if we try hard enough, we can figure out that some of this stuff is really wrong and bad. But right. if you have an individual who is a survivor of trauma and it is way, way too, too high of a percentage of humans not only in the Middle East, not only in Europe, but here in the greatest, you know, democracy, the greatest economy that we have. Mm. I mean, trauma is a gigantic problem and right. you, you don't need to be molested or abused to be the victim of trauma. You just kind of need things, something to not go super perfectly in your childhood while your brain is developing. If one of your parents is just a little less attentive than you want them to be, then suddenly all of this energy is being put towards getting that parent's attention because 100,000 mm -hmm. years ago in those tribal grasslands, getting the attention of that parent could mean life or death. It meant that they would feed you or not. All right, so this is extremely mm -hmm. strong, especially in children. So now as you move into adulthood, you've got this sort of, this trigger. You, like, uh, Dr. Uh, Vanderkolk, who read The Body Keeps the Score, he showed how trauma sort of like shuts down a couple parts of the brain and it, mm. it helps the amygdala like shoot past a few things, basically creating like triggers where you're going to manifest behavior that you don't want. It's going to make you antisocial. It's going to make you scared and it's going to make you really vulnerable to narratives that include things like violence and pathologies. And so this mm. is what I was seeing among these ISIS recruits. And a lot of these guys were rounded mm -hmm. up and they were interviewed and they basically told us as much. They had something really bad happen um, in their lives and they would go to mosque and they would hear a preacher sort of set out this very clean, very attractive narrative that would prove to the listener that the stuff, bad stuff going on in your life is not your fault. It's actually right. the fault of the West and of Christians and of this conspiracy. 
And mm. we used to say that ISIS recruits would move from the fringes of society to the center of global events. Because I mean, from 2013 yeah. to 15, ISIS was on the front page of the newspaper almost every day. I mean, yeah. what can that do to the psyche of someone who has a degree in computer science, is living in Paris, but can't get a job, can't buy a home, can't attract a mate, can't have kids. So you're, her, their parents are disappointed, grandparents are disappointed, the community is wondering what's wrong with them. This mm. is intensely attractive. Okay, so here's the basis yeah. of my article is that when I saw the events of January 6th unfold and then the aftermath, all the commentary and the studies, the far-right studies of uh, everything they were doing on the internet, it, it seems so similar to what I was seeing. Mm. And I mean, it was YouTube. It was YouTube in the hands yeah. of psychologically vulnerable individuals that flipped yeah. the Middle East over. It lit the entire region on fire. Not only that, it sparked a refugee crisis in Europe that flipped over right. politics in like major European countries. So my, right, yeah. my takeaway is that digital media is uniquely pernicious and powerful, more so than television, newspapers, radio ever could dream of being just because mm. of the virility possibilities. So if we as a country were to effectively regulate digital media, even people like Tucker Carlson would have their influence decreased by a lot right. because like you, me, and millions of other people who don't watch Tucker Carlson, we're affected by what he says and not because he has 3 million Fox news watchers, but because he has 30 million people who are taking what he says and then recirculating it through the internet. And they're getting into yeah. the eyes and brains of lots and lots more vulnerable people. And just to put a finer point on this, let's say you have a hundred people who are consuming whatever digital media they're going to consume when they log onto the internet during their day. And let's say 99 of them consume it responsibly, that they're using their brains, they're questioning, they're not being, they're not falling into rabbit holes. But let's say one out of a hundred is grabbing onto narratives that sort of lift them up as this like freedom fighter in this war, this civil war in America that's about to occur. If you have 1% of Americans in that kind of headspace, I mean, that's over 3 million people who are reaching for pitchforks <laughs> against their political right. enemies, which is yeah. just a terrifying you know, system of events. So we cannot, we can't let that happen. So things can get a whole lot worse than they are now is, is my takeaway. And hmm. trauma therapies and digital media are right, are at the heart of how we can grab onto solutions. It can really, really pull of our, our country out of a really bad place. Hmm. Well, um, I think that just about wraps up our conversation. That was a great answer. Um, I think that should leave a lot for certainly leaves a lot for me to think about, and I think it'll also leave a lot for our for our listeners to think about. Um, well, I think it's great that we had such a wide ranging discussion from yeah, what went wrong in Afghanistan to Vietnam to the perhaps the childhoods of ISIS fighters and, and mass shooters. And I think that there's a lot of the a lot of the lessons. I think well, a lot of the core takeaways of those discussions are actually pretty similar, which is just to focus on uh, proactive attentiveness to these situations of w where things can be destabilized and trying to work to stabilize mm. those situations at, at, before it's too late. So um, 
I really enjoyed this this chat. So thank you very much for talking with us, Brad. Hey, was, I thanks for having wonderful. me. I really enjoyed it too. I mean, you guys are really thoughtful guys and you guys really stretched me. My brain is really tired right now. <laughs> but I, <laughs> no, it was a fantastic conversation. You, you came at those questions and you, you really gave good answers to everything. So a lot to think about. Thanks, thanks. I'm a freelance uh, worker now, so I have a little more time than usual to try to think about these things and pull them apart. So I hope I'm, hope I'm on the right track, but I'll... You know, Definitely. And, and before you go, is is there anything you want to plug to our listeners at all uh, that you'd like them to know about? Anything you're working on or, or writing or, or anything like that? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm writing a book and it's going to feature a handful of the arguments I've made today. I'm making okay. very awesome. frustratingly slow progress. I don't have a title or anything like that, but that's my current project right now. Well, keep your eyes keep your eyes peeled for that, listeners. Branchinata, yeah. And hey, uh, when you're when you're getting closer to publication, or once you've published, uh, hit us up, and we'll have you back on, and we can talk about it. Oh, that'd be incredible! I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks again, Brent. Hey, thank you guys.